We turn now to Psalm 51. And our sermon text will be Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You're familiar, I trust, with the context from which this psalm came. The title speaks of it. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And sometime after that, Nathan comes to him and says, Thou art the man. And God, through that prophetic confrontation, broke David's heart. And here in the psalm, we see that on display. That word from the prophet was not wasted in David's life. And my desire, indeed God's desire, for this psalm is that today as well, the prophetic word would not be wasted, but that today with David, your heart would be broken. We'll consider the text itself, and then we'll consider in greater depth the doctrine from that text. And then by grace the application to our lives. So let's look at the text. And we have before us a sufficient sacrifice. Consider first the sacrifice itself. In one word, it is brokenness or contrition. That is the state of being crushed. These two words speak to us of an entire destruction. A broken and a contrite heart mean a heart that is shattered into a thousand pieces. That is not only pressed down, but totally crushed. So that if it were a pottery vessel, it would be entirely unusable. And it's a destruction of the entire man. First, of course, in the soul, but with the soul, the body, even as we sang in Psalm 38, the bones themselves crying out, broken over sin. And that indeed is the reason for this brokenness is sin. This whole psalm, as we read, speaks of that. Consider David's words. He says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin, I have sinned. I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Both sins guilt. That is, by sin, we deserve condemnation and sin's power, that under it we are enslaved and by nature 
cannot do anything but sin. David has seen that. He's confessing a total inability to save himself. We can call this here, this brokenness, a total despair, an utter hopelessness. Now, not, as is clear from the psalm itself, a despair of grace, not a despair of salvation, but a despair of self, a despair of any ability from my own resources to deal with this problem of my sin. The sacrifice is brokenness. But then second, we see its sufficiency. This sacrifice is enough. It is sufficient. It's sufficient first for the one who makes the sacrifice It is, as the text says, literally, the sacrifices, plural, of God. The plural sacrifices. And this is a way to speak of all the sacrifices. Any sacrifice that you ought to make, and all of them together, are summarized in this one. This is the sacrifices that you must make. Compare verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice. David's not speaking absolutely. God did desire burnt offerings in their place. But that's what he's emphasizing is their place. That compared to this sacrifice of a broken spirit, all those animals were nothing and were useless. Indeed, what we see here is the right use of those sacrifices. That when the animal was brought, the believer had to bring his heart And offer that first before the lamb or goat. The whole aim of those sacrifices is summed up here. In the slain animal, they were to see the slain Savior, Jesus Christ. But not just in Himself, but them in Him, the slain Christian. Offering, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, their very bodies, as living sacrifices upon the altar. That's the sacrifice being spoken of here. And if it's given, that is all, all the sacrifices of God. It's sufficient for the one who's bringing the sacrifices. But second, also, it's sufficient for the one who receives that sacrifice. It is sufficient obedience These are the sacrifices, it says, of God. That is to say, if God receives the sacrifice, then this is all he asks. He is pleased for it. Not because completely abstracted in itself, there's nothing else to offer, but because when this is offered, it by necessity brings all other things with it. God is pleased with this obedience of the giving of a broken heart. And it brings him sufficient pleasure. Look at what it says. O God, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, turning more intimately in the second person to address God. Thou 
wilt not despise. Men might despise the sacrifice. Indeed, proud men hate the humble heart. And we ourselves might despise the necessity of giving it. For it is very unpleasant to have our hearts so broken over sin. But God is not displeased. He will not look down on it. He will not despise the sacrifice. And on the other side, this is a powerful way to say that God is highly pleased. This gives God exceeding pleasure. As we heard in our call to worship, this is the man to whom he will look. This man who has this broken and contrite heart. It is the sufficient sacrifice. Let's consider then a doctrine that comes from this text. It's that a heart broken over sin is essential to true Christian piety. Again, I want you to understand from this text that a heart broken over sin is essential to true Christian piety. And briefly, I want to show you this from six different angles. First, it's essential to true Christian piety because such a heart is preparatory for faith. If your heart is not first broken, you will not believe in a saving way. So we have a clear example of that in the book of Acts, chapter 2. When 3,000 men were saved, they called on the name of the Lord and were saved. What came first? That by the word and the power of the Spirit applying that word, they were, it says, pierced. They were cut. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the cry of a broken heart that's come to the end of its own resources and knows that because of sin, there's nothing that we can do in our own strength. And so it cries out, well, what is there to do? And the answer comes to believe, to be baptized, to be in Christ. That's the solution. To come to Christ through faith. But you see what came first is the broken heart. You see that again, very similarly in chapter 16 of Acts with the jailer. He has first an ungodly, unbelieving brokenness by which he almost kills himself. He's told to stop, to do himself no harm. But then the Spirit of God works in his heart and gives him that true brokenness. And he makes the same cry, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you know the answer. Believe. Believe. He was prepared for faith by this brokenness of heart. And Christ lays out to us in Luke 5 that this has to be the way. He says it's not the whole that need a physician. You don't go to the doctor if you're healthy. You have no need. It is the sick that need a physician. That is to say, it's those who know they're sick. Because you might be sick, but if you don't know it, you won't go to the doctor, or at least you will not take the remedy that's offered to you. It's a knowledge of our sickness that is a broken heart that must come first before we flee to Christ in faith. So it's preparatory for faith. Second, it's necessary for repentance. Think of our shorter catechism, how it defines repentance as a saving grace wherein a sinner 
out of a true sense of his sin. That's spoken of here. And an apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin. There again is the broken heart. Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You see, the fullness of repentance includes by necessity this ingredient of a broken heart. It's necessary. God indeed promises this as part of the repentance He promises His people. A clear example of that is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, you know the passage. It's when God is promising that He would give a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. So we read of that. But then He goes on in verse 31 to speak of what this heart of flesh will be like, what kind of affections it will have. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. That's a powerful description of a broken heart, isn't it? It's essential. It's necessary for repentance. Third, the broken heart leads to justification, to the forgiveness of our sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. The Lord Jesus said this so memorably when he spoke to us of those two men in the temple in Luke 18. The self-righteous Pharisee who would be justified by his own works and could not be. But then the publican who couldn't lift his eyes to heaven, who smote upon his breast, who cried out, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And the Lord Jesus says it in express words, that this man rather than the other went down to his house justified. That publican is a perfect example of exactly what our text speaks of, a broken and a contrite heart. And Christ says, that heart will be justified. Fourth, it's a part of sanctification. We can speak, even as I prayed, of mortification, the putting of our sins to death, and of vivification, rising to new life by the power of the Holy Ghost. Particularly that first part is where a broken heart comes in, in the putting of our sins to death. As Paul says in Galatians 5.24, of crucifying our own flesh, How can you do that without a broken heart? How can you have the godly self-hatred that we spoke of in Ezekiel 36 that would take the sword to your own soul unless that soul is first broken over its sins? It's impossible. Fifth, as well, part of sanctification, it's also basic to cross-bearing. Christ says in Matthew 16, 24 and other places that if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. How can a sinner do that? How can he be willing to bear Christ's cross if he's not first brought low because of his sins? If you can't stoop low enough to come under that burden of the cross as Jesus lays it on you, you will never bear it. 
A broken heart is basic to cross-bearing. But sixth, with all these things, we can add this. In this age, it is impossible otherwise if we even have our eyes open to reality. Consider Romans 8, how it speaks of the groaning of creation. There's a sense in which the rocks, the trees, the animals... Everything in this world has a broken heart. It's always crying out because of the burden of man's sin. How can all those creatures be broken? But we would not be when we are the cause of their groaning. Anyone who's sensitive to sin must groan with the creation. But all the more that groaning, that brokenness is required because of the sin that still remains within. How can someone who still has a sinful nature, even a saved Christian, indeed, especially a saved Christian, who alone among all people now can recognize that sinfulness that still remains, how can you not cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Again, the cry of a broken heart. Though in a believer, how similar to that cry of those just converted that we read of in Acts. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? We cannot live in a sinful world and with a sinful heart and be honest without a broken heart. Now I need to address three objections here. They may be present in your mind. If not, you'll hear them in due time from others. First is an objection from Christian joy. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, rejoice. Are you denying, people might ask, that Christian duty of rejoicing at all times? Of course not. The duties God gives us are never in conflict. But the question here is first one of an ob- the object. When we speak of Christian joy and of Christian sorrow, they clearly have uh, different things as their object. And the object of Christian joy, yes, is always there. If a Christian's been saved, then he remains saved. He's always justified. He's always growing in grace. He's always headed to heaven. He's always being preserved. And all those and countless others are reasons to rejoice always. Those reasons never change. They can't because God doesn't change. And therefore, of course, the Christian must rejoice always. But the object of Christian sorrow is certainly not those things. It's other things. It's sin. It's remaining sinful nature. It's our inability to save ourselves. And those things never change either. And so, we always, indeed as Paul says elsewhere, we we always are rejoicing and we always are sorrowing. They have two different objects, and so that, that can happen at the same time. It's like Christians with their two eyes are always weeping out of both, one with tears of joy, one with tears of sorrow. That's how it must be, because the reasons for both always remain. But then there's also a question of timing. We typically only show one major emotion at once, and that's part because we're finite. And that means there are going to be times in which we show more joy than sorrow, and that's normal. Wisdom tells us this. Solomon writes of it in Ecclesiastes 3, that there is a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. 
and we need to know that time. But the different timing shows us that Christian joy and Christian sorrow are in no conflict. So that's really no objection. The second, though, is from Christian righteousness. You can read in Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And that's true. Every Christian has been changed. He has a new nature, and he's been forgiven of all his past sins. So there is something different. There's not the same sinfulness as there once were. The dominion of sin has been broken, though its presence, in large part, does still remain. And I don't mean to deny that, and certainly this text does not. You need to remember, though that is true, a Christian's sins, indeed even a Christian's past sins, though forgiven, are still in themselves sinful. And indeed, as a Christian grows in grace, he sees that reality more clearly. And so with David, we always have cause to cry out, the sins of my youth, O Lord, forget. Grace indeed makes the presence of sin all the more intolerable, as we already saw from Romans 7, 24. Christian righteousness, in its own way, drives us to this broken heart, this sorrow over sin. And so again, that's no objection. But third, perhaps the most weighty in many people's minds is the objection from Christ-centeredness. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. And you could say, perhaps, if to, if it's to, li- if to live is Christ, and we're to be always Christ-centered and Christ-focused, then why would we be always looking at our sin and sorrowing? Wouldn't that vision of Christ keep us from that? Indeed, aren't we supposed to be focusing on Christ and not ourselves as Christians? Well, that sounds right. In its own way, it is right. But you need to understand something. This broken heart is Christ-centered, and it does exalt Christ in a powerful way. Consider how this broken heart exalts Christ by obeying Him. He said in the Great Commission that we are to teach people to obey all things whatsoever He hath commanded. I hope you've seen that having this broken heart is a command of the Lord Jesus who wrote this Bible for us. And doesn't obeying Christ bring glory to Christ? We should think that way. It exalts Him as well by following Him, by imitating Him. We have a Savior who cried out in the words of Psalm 69, 20, Reproach hath broken mine heart, and I am full of heaviness. Of whom it said in Isaiah 53, that He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How could that be true of Christ and not of the Christian? in union with Him. That Jesus in this life would sorrow so deeply over His sin, though He had committed none Himself. And we who are in Him, who have our own sins as well, why would we not sorrow? We follow Jesus, and that exalts Him. We live His life after Him in this life. But also, 
we exalt Christ with a broken heart because that broken heart indeed removes all hindrances in our lives to giving Christ glory. The broken heart is the heart of John the Baptist who said, He must increase and I must decrease. The very definition of the broken heart is that we are done with our own selves. That we don't trust in ourselves and we abominate the idea of lifting ourselves above the Lord Jesus Christ. Or of replacing Him as the sole Savior of sinners. We've learned, if we have a broken heart, indeed, that Christ alone is the hope of a sinner. And what could bring Him more glory? So you see... Christ-centeredness is no objection. The broken heart puts Christ right at the center and exalts him very highly. Let's consider then, having learned these things, how we ought to respond. And I bring you three applications this morning. The first is examination. You need to test your heart. You need to test its brokenness. We read it from 2 Corinthians 7. I bring you there again to underline this fact that this question of a broken heart is a matter of eternal life and death. And there are counterfeits to the broken heart of which your deceitful heart must be warned. Again, 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. The unbroken heart, Paul warns, will be destroyed even if it thinks that it is broken. If it's not, indeed it will. A powerful testimony of that is from Ezekiel again, but now chapter 9. Ezekiel sees a vision of a man with an inkhorn. He's to take his pen and dip it in the ink and put a mark, verse 4 says, upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. There's men of a broken heart. And to others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And it goes on to speak of that slaughter. And this is a warning. And this is a call, a very powerful one to you to know, is that mark upon your forehead? Has God written on your head a broken heart? If it's there, you're safe. If it's not, you're not. And you need to know this. So how can you know? Let's consider then the marks that separate this godly sorrow from the sorrow of the world. Start first with the marks of false brokenness. False brokenness is first an incomplete brokenness. It's broken about some things, some sins, but not them all. We see a testimony of that in Esau. He had a sort of brokenness. Hebrews 12, 17 tells us of him that he lost the blessing and then he sought it with tears. 
with tears, but that he found no place of repentance, even though he sought it with tears. What's being said about Esau? What was wrong with those tears? They're, it's good to have tears. And the tears, in a sense, were because of his sin, his foolishness in giving up the blessing. It's in the nature of the blessing that he sought. He wanted the earthly goods. He wanted the stew. He hadn't changed from that early day in which he traded his birthright for the stew. He was sad about the earthly consequences of sin, but he was not sad about sin itself. It's an incomplete brokenness. Second false brokenness is that of disobedience, a disobedient brokenness, a brokenness that professes to be sorry for sin but does not forsake it. We see that in King Saul. How many times does it appear that perhaps the Lord has done something in Saul's heart and he's repented and he's been sorry and he's asked forgiveness of David and yet what's the proof that that brokenness wasn't real? It's that he goes back, as the Proverbs say, as a dog to its vomit and he commits the same sins again and again and with less and less compunction It seems his repentance was not real because he went back with no change. It's a disobedient heart, which is not a broken heart. But third, a false brokenness is that of despair. A despairing brokenness. Again, there's a good despair. Indeed, a broken heart is despair of self. But then there's the despair of mercy, which may have some outward similarities, but is a whole heaven different. Think of the brokenness of Judas. This is a despairing brokenness. He committed suicide. And before that, we see that he repented himself. He was sorry, in a sense, that he had sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He even, in a sense, made restitution, taking those pieces of silver back and casting them into the temple. But his suicide itself was proof that this was no true brokenness. That he was taking matters into his own hands. That itself is a proof he hadn't given up all hope in himself. And laid it upon Christ. And we hear the confirmation that this brokenness was false in what the apostles pray after they replace him or when they're replacing him in Acts 1. That he went to his own place. That is to hell. You need to see these false forms of brokenness and test your heart for them. But then by contrast, see the true. What are the marks of this true brokenness? Well, in comparison or contrast to the incomplete brokenness, there is a thorough brokenness. And that's put on display by David in this psalm. Think of verse 4. He's not just worried about sin's consequences. Indeed, he's put them aside. He's even put aside the ones he sinned against because his greatest concern is that sin has offended God. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, he says in Psalm 51, verse 4, and done this evil in thy sight. He's understood the real problem with sin. It's that he has offended God. That's a thorough brokenness. But it's also thorough in that he understands, verse 5, that it's not just about this or that action. 
that he's dealing in those actions with the evidence of a sinful nature, that though he's a believer, still remains in such force in his old man. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He traces the fruit back to the stem and the trunk and all the way down to the root, and he is done with all of it. He hates the whole tree. You see the completeness of David's brokenness. Test your heart. Are you broken for all sin and chiefly because of what it's done to God? But second, in contrast to Saul's disobedient brokenness, we have an obedient brokenness again in David. Look at verse 13, how he emphasizes this. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Not only, Lord, will I obey you, I will, in vengeance on my disobedience, do all I can to see that others obey you as well. I, who have labored for sin, will now redouble my labors for righteousness in myself and and in anyone else who will hear me. That's a zeal for obedience, which is a mark of true brokenness. But third, in contrast to the despairing brokenness of of Judas, we have a hopeful brokenness. And that's shown to us in the psalm we sang earlier, Psalm 130. Verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? There's a broken heart. There's despair over self. Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with thee. There is the hope. There is the confidence that what the text says is true, that a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That thou mayest be feared. There's another reminder of the obedience that comes with brokenness. So it's a brokenness that's thorough, that's obedient, and that is filled with hope. Test your broken heart. Test your heart. Is it broken in this way? Second application. After examination can properly come consolation to comfort your heart. If indeed you can say, though much remains incomplete in your brokenness, that nonetheless what's there is true, then you may take true comfort. There's a comfort first of propriety, that there is indeed, as Ecclesiastes says, a time to weep, and you have found that time, and that you're using it well. Indeed, you've determined, as Ecclesiastes says in the later chapter 7, verse 2, that it is better to be in the house of mourning, that there is an appropriateness in this sinful world to always having our eyes running with tears of sorrow, especially over sin and its consequence of death. Think of the testimony of this we have in Proverbs 25, 20, when it says that he that sings songs to a heavy heart is like nitre upon vinegar. It'll explode. It's like taking off a garment on a cold day. It makes someone shiver. It's so inappropriate By contrast, how appropriate it is for there to be a time to weep. There's a real comfort in that, just as 
the comfort we may take when a loved one dies of spending time in grief. It's right. It's good. The world may despise it, but we actually take pleasure in this, that we can properly mourn sin. But there's also the comfort, and especially the comfort, of salvation, of justification, that a man like the publican, with a broken heart like his, goes home to his house justified. I want you to hear this, even little children here. I want you to hear this. If today, even for the first time, your heart is broken, if today you, under the weight of your sins, cry out, what must I do? And you then pray with that publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He will be. And you will go home justified. You might have come in condemned, headed to hell. But today, hear Jesus' voice. If you believe in Him, you will go home justified. If you have this broken heart, it will bring you eternal life. You will go home justified. You will hear those words that David heard when he spoke to Nathan. Thy sins are forgiven thee. But also, there's the comfort of sanctification. That this broken heart brings with it so many beautiful graces. Zeal, revenge, clearing of ourselves, an eagerness to serve the Lord and to be done with sin. Christian, do you long for victory over sin? If you have this broken heart, you're on the way. And you will win. And the Lord is even in that brokenness by working it in you, teaching you to put your sin to death. And then, being justified and sanctified, you have the hope of eternal life. And there is no greater comfort than this knowledge. That you can say to God, even in the deepest sorrows of your sin, In the words of Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And later in the psalm, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto Thee forever. The broken heart and the broken heart alone may rejoice in that way. And so if you have it, my friends, do rejoice. And remember that you were exhorted to this very thing last Saturday before the Lord's Supper, that it is with such a man that God will dwell, with the brokenhearted sinner, Oh, and if God will dwell with you, beginning now and continuing for eternity, what greater comfort could you have? So take comfort. Comfort your heart. Third and finally, then, after examination and consolation, I bring to you exhortation. Though for the power to have our heart broken, we cast our hope on God alone. 
Nonetheless, you and I have a duty to do all we can using the means God gives to break our own hearts. And so I call you today to break your heart. Consider two means the Lord has given so that you might do this. The first is meditation. You are to break your heart by directing its thoughts to things that are particularly well-suited to this work of heartbreaking. One is God, indeed the most important thing. Think particularly of God's holiness. This is what Isaiah saw in chapter 6. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of His robe filling the temple, the angels praising Him, holy, holy, holy. What was His response? I am undone. Woe is me. There's a broken heart. If you want to be there on the floor with Isaiah with that broken heart, you need to open your eyes and see what he saw. We do that by meditating on God's glory and His holiness. And if you truly see it, your heart will truly break. But then as well, inseparable from that, you need to see sin and its sinfulness. So that you might truly say with David against thee and thee only, have I sinned? To see that sin against an infinitely good God is in its own way infinitely evil. And you need to let the infinite weight of sin's evil rest upon your heart until it's broken. And as a help to that, third, think of sin's punishment and how unbearably horrible and heinous that it is. Think, my friends, of hell. Let the weight of an everlasting punishment with no recourse and no relief, which is the perfectly righteous punishment of sin that you and I deserve, let that rest upon your heart. And do not use the excuses of the flesh to prevent the blessing this meditation can bring to you. Hell is very weighty, but you ought to use that weight for this good end. And let it sit upon your heart, not just so that it's pressed, but until it's crushed until that vessel of your heart is shattered. Let hell do that to you. Let as well the temporal punishments that we call chastisements in this life do it for you as well. God had a particular use in David's life of this in regard to this very sin for which he wrote this psalm. God said that his child would die, and he did. He said that his, his sons would rebel against him. Indeed, that they would lie with his wives. He said that the sword would not depart from his house, and all these things happened. And David submitted to it. Perhaps you yourself know ways in which God has brought to you discipline because of sin. Not condemnation, for there is none if you're in Christ, but discipline out of love as a good father. You need, as Micah says, to hear the rod. 
God made it, and he made it heavy so that it would break your heart. And God in this way is like the Apostle Paul, not because he wants to make you sorry, but his desire is that through that godly sorrow brought through his good discipline, you would in due time rejoice, even as David did in his salvation. So use these things, but in them all, do not forget this meditation. That your heart might be broken, you need to meditate on Christ and on His loveliness as the only Savior of the broken heart. Think of that one we read of, for example, in Luke 7, who brought that expensive jar of ornament and who broke it on Jesus' feet and who wiped those feet with her own hair, watering them with her tears. What made her most of all flow with these tears in her face? It was that she heard that Jesus, the Savior, would be there. And she couldn't help but come to him and give him these gifts of love. If you want your eyes to run with tears about your sin, you need to do the same. To flee to Jesus and to see him and to be near him. It's Jesus himself. It's the remedy for the broken heart that does the best work of breaking that heart. The prophet Zechariah put it this way, that they will look on me, on Christ who himself is Jehovah. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. I call you today to look on Jesus, to look to him and in him have every reason then to break your heart. I call you as well to the means of prayer. God has promised that he would break the hearts of his elect, that he would break hearts as part of his salvation. We heard of that in Ezekiel 36, that he would make us loathe ourselves, that he would, as I just read from Zechariah, cause us to look on Christ and to mourn. God has promised. The way to access that promise now is to pray. If God said he'd do it, then ask him to do it. If you don't have a broken heart, or if you have a heart that's broken, but not to the degree it should be, go home and ask him. Say, Lord, please break my heart. Please give to me this very thing that you require and that you promise. But also in prayer, help yourself break your own heart by confessing brokenness as you can. Even you may have to start with just the objective brokenness, the fact that you have sinned. But I encourage you to begin by confessing the sins you know. Pray for grace to confess more. And in the very confession itself, you may find by the mercy of God that he gives you the brokenness you ought to feel about those sins that you're confessing. So I've given you the means of meditation and prayer i leave you finally with the means of faith, which is the means to use in all these means. You must forsake all trust in yourself. That is the definition of this broken heart. You must say with Job, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes and recognize that you yourself 
are exactly one of those things that Jeremiah spoke of in 2.13, broken cisterns which can hold no water. If you know that of yourself, then second, you should know of Christ. That by resting in Him, your broken heart will be accepted and will be blessed. Jesus' very words said this. You're familiar with how He said in the Sermon on the Mount that it's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness that shall be filled. And blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus Himself is saying to you today to take this hope of David on your lips and in your heart that a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. Amen.